This is a random episode uh, recorded in Puerto in my hotel room with Demian. Demian is a good friend of mine, uh, kind of party animal, and um, yeah, he's got some funny stories. Hope you enjoy. Alright, I hit record, so yeah. Let's do a little chat. What did you call it? Proto chats. Proto chats. It's recording. Yeah, I think so. So tell me again why you want to use that bed <laughs> instead of that bed. The sex bed. The sex bed. Um, well, because if the girl sleeps over, I want the bigger bed for the sleeping. For you. And cuddling. Oh. No, no, no. So she's welcome to stay in the she's bed. She's welcome to stay in the you bed. You just don't want the dirt to sleep in the filth. I'm just it's saying... Funny. Some people love to sleep in the filth. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't mind it, but if I had the option, I think I would prefer the filth to be separate. I like the filth, but there's a limit. There's a limit to the yeah, filth? Yeah, so that reminds me of what I was going to tell you was... You had an ex that liked the filth way too much. <laughs> well, she literally made the bed uninhabitable <laughs> it's literally like like just buckets of liquid okay she was a squirter like, like I squirt doesn't def, it doesn't she do was justice a, she was a, a tsunami -er, a flood <laughs> she was a tsunami -er. I know she was she, a Na Niagara Falls -er. yeah the natives would have given her some sort of traditional geyser name <laughs> anyway the story is really great because um when I was in high school, uh, I had a crush on her. She was super beautiful, like really beautiful. And I was my age, but she always dated older guys. And she was like, you know, cool girl, good dresser, just super beautiful. And uh, I never, you know, I didn't really think I could ask her out or do whatever. And then I had the scooter in high school. And that was kind of my MO, as I would kick girls for drives on my scooter. And I would take them out to this area where the cliffs were. And one day, I don't know, I convinced her to come onto my scooter. And so we drove there, but first we stopped at this area called the Waterworks, the big water filtration plants. Foreshadowing. <laughs> there we go, there's the ironing right there. But anyway, so it was like a big open parking lot where a lot of people practice driving. And she's like, well, can I try to drive your scooter, you know? And I was like, okay. And she gets on it, and the first thing she does is like floor the gas and ride right into the curb and crash. And like scrape her elbow and completely bend the forks and make the scooter scooter unrideable and I was like beside myself you know the scooter was my baby and I was like oh my god and you know and she felt so bad and she was injured and the whole like obviously there was like everything went out the what window and do? then yeah. um, I remember going home my dad was all pissed off I let some girl drive it and it was like this ordeal to get it paid and then the summer started and I never saw her again for a long time and it was like this whole thing and I don't know, I think she felt guilty that she didn't want to come with the money, and I don't remember ever talking to her about it. So then years later, I saw her, started seeing her in magazines. She became like a really successful model. And I would see her like all over the world when I was traveling and stuff. And then, and I'd heard that she started like this clothing line or whatever. So then probably about six years ago, seven years ago, I was living in Miami, and I said hi to her, I, well, we became Facebook friends, and I said hi to her, and we started chatting, and the next day she came to Miami to visit me. 
she was going coming to Florida anyway. I took her for a skydive, and then we hooked up, and we spent like a couple weekends together. And then I discovered her, 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 her aqua talents. Anyway, it was like super incredible because it was like my childhood sweetheart dream kind of like manifested, and I liked it. But it turned out that her personality wasn't a sustainable match for me because she had a really kind of hard childhood that I didn't realize. And so she had this kind of strange mix of completely entitled personality because she was super beautiful and she was super well-traveled model and she had all these super rich boyfriends and a rich ex-husband that took care of her and all this stuff. Yet she had these really deep kind of insecurities and neediness. And so she was like this like really delicate mix of like entitled and needy. And I just wasn't qualified. And it came to a head really quickly, like on our second weekend together. I was with my son was there, I guess he was like six years old at the time. And we were all wrestling and having fun and whatever. And then we were out drinking that night and out of nowhere she just says to me, your son's a fucking pervert. <laughs> what? Like six he's, year old kid. Yeah, he goes, he, he's like, he tried to grab my pussy when we were wrestling. And I was like, what? He's like, well, why did you tell me then? I would have said something. And she's like, he's just such a fucking pervert. And I was, then I was drunk and I was like, what? can't talk to my, about my son like that. And then all the underlying things that I knew that we weren't compatible or like her personality just traits. Exploded all in one shot. Yeah, and it like, it got so bad that we were out in public and she just went over to these strangers and said, can I come home with you? I don't want to be with this guy anymore. And she like got in their car and drove to my apartment and waited and then took her bags and left. And then well, we made up friends over whatever, and then I saw her again in New York, like just a few a few times, and then we chat now, and we're like friends again. But you know, it's a very strange thing. That's my big gusher story. Big gusher <laughs> story. But she liked to sleep in her. She, no, she, no, she didn't. She didn't oh. warn me either. It, you couldn't sleep unless you're like a seal would have trouble being comfortable <laughs> in that. It was so much that first time she did it, I was like, okay. I was really wasted. I was like, let's see what you can do. I was like, I want to, you know, like, like challenge those boundary. porn movies and see if we could, like, how far we could get our... And she was like, I'm not, I'm not a circus performer. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I'm so sure. You know? I like, the, I like the voice that you do for... Anyway, I think it's like telling, you know, of, like, relationships, the voice that you do to imitate them. Anyway, it was a funny week, couple weekends, that's for sure. And uh, See, you would benefit from having two beds. So how did you guys do? Did you have to like, take off well, the sheets? I had three beds in my time? apartment, ah, okay, luckily so enough. I had like this sofa bed with a red velvet covering that I would pull out. And uh, I think she actually, she, I think that she would scoped it out and realized if there had only been one bed, she might have. She might have had to, you know. She might have been like, "Let's fuck on the floor." <laughs> she might have been like, "Hey, let me. Do you have any rubber sheets or like a, <laughs> a child's pool <laughs> we can set up around here?" I mean, it was in, there was puddles. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. was crazy. Yeah, yeah, squares. <laughs> Damn, this is all right. We're going. See, like I thought we'd warm up with something like, yeah, but we just went right into squirters and like kids being perverts. Well, I'm just actually just tell me about that because I don't obviously like I don't have kids, but I have this concept that like kids will always just instinctively like jump on your dick, like kick you in the dick or like punch you in the dick, like 
like yeah, by accident. I mean, I did it to my dad and uncle and grandparents for sure. Like, yeah, I mean, it's I just, just I think that any when you rough house and you don't, you know, you're, gonna get you're not conscious of it, you'll hit everything eventually, and that's probably more like it. I think there was always that sinister kid who's always, you know, just kind of knows. Yeah, like, he, he knows, knows that's and, a soft spot. Exactly, he's just looking for soft spots. I would assume. I don't know. I mean, I just my son is really sweet person and I don't have a high tolerance for criticism of him especially from her and it just and I know that he didn't I, mean, I don't know still the whole thing was whack it was you know really wasn't about him but um uh no my son was never never violent or never hurt anyone he was never gross and never had any like like kind of discipline issues so Luckily, growing, you know, as a parent, I was able to just gloss over those kind of things. I really feel for parents that they get stuck. They get stuck dealing with that, and and it's not always. How's your kid now? He's fourteen and a half. Fourteen and a half. And so, I have friends who are also like who are good parents, but just once you know, you can't help it. Some kids just born, um, screaming. It's like I have you read the The Godfather, Mario Puzo. No, I haven't read it. I've so watched the movies. He's describing um, how um, uh, Vito Corleone found Luca Brasi, his main assassin. He says, some people are just born screaming, and they never really stop. And at one point, they just walk around and say, kill me, kill me, kill me. And eventually, somebody will come and kill them. He's like... Luca Brasi was one of these people, but if you can meet them when you're young, and you can convince them that, uh, I don't remember the details, but it's something like that, that you can convince them that, um, that you can give their life meaning, then these people become loyal beyond loyal. They've been loyalty beyond anything, and that's how he, he found his, his like, main killer in the book. And then in the book, Michael finds Nero, kind of the same way. He was a, Nero was a, a cop who went to prison for um, beating this black guy, and they'd heard about him, and then he was like this really like crazed cop, and they went and, and bailed him out of prison, and he, Vito told the same story to Michael, and said, and then they tried to vet him to see if he would become like a, a loyal henchman killer. Anyway, that same theory, not to the to the like of killing people but I see that in a lot of people I saw that in a family member of mine born screaming you know I like to believe I was born smiling you were and your son <laughs> yeah it's about it's, it's just that's just a nice little, it's a cute parable of, of you, what your nature is right? I'm reading I'm reading a collection of young Carl Jung's work and um, yeah I mean he has this there's this uh, delineation of personal unconscious and collective unconscious. And uh, in some ways, like, a lot of his therapy has to do with what story, no, he's, he, he uses the word myth. What myth are you living now? And so somehow I think some people are, are born into a myth that they're very, somehow either conscious of a certain conflict that they it's almost like they're born into it and then their life's work is kind of dealing with that from the get-go 
and then others kind of come into their myth at a certain age or stage of life. Yeah, that's the classic nature over nurture. And then and then then it becomes really hard to define because I, that's why I like the born analogy. Born screaming. Born screaming or crying. Because there there is no um, uh, assimilating a myth or a story or a parable. Well, that's well, the that's way you're, you're that's thing. the ultimate the ultimate first um, expression of your nature. Yeah, but the, the interesting thing is he doesn't put it as assimilating a myth. He the way he describes the collective unconscious is is a kind of a passed down like almost a hereditary knowledge, and and so the only personal part of it, the only assimilation of it is whether, yeah, whether you're gonna. So this is the thing that I've I've, I've been. Yeah, very, very curious about because we, we talked about EMT and maybe we'll come, come to that subject eventually. But he talks about this collective unconscious and the way that he describes it is that if all of humanity was wiped out and all of our religions and mythology, all of our writing essentially, then the next generation would rewrite the myths in a, in a very similar way. So what he's, what he's trying to point out is that there's... A collective unconscious he he makes a analogy to or, or a comparison to instincts the way that instincts are kind of hereditary and the way that even for example chimpanzees will instinctually act defensively towards snakes even if they've never seen a snake in their lifetime and humans will do, do the same I'm not that familiar with him but from what you're saying and the fact that he's, you know, from a science, is that he's looking at it from a biological aspect. Well, he's not, not a not a spiritual aspect. Because though that's, you know, where you inherit the karma of your ancestors or the karma of the planet or the universe, that would be the same kind of... Well, so, so, okay, so that's a good question. So my interpretation, and I haven't gone far enough yet to, to say it decisively, is that he is looking actually at it from a spiritual aspect. Oh, he is? I yeah. thought he was, I'm not that familiar he, with him, but he's a psychiatrist, right? He's a, yeah, so he's a, a, a so he had patients, so he was a clinical psycho, uh, psychiatrist and also a researcher. But he found, so he was, you know, he was kind of initiated into Freud's psychoanalytical program, uh, and Freud considered him a prodigy to the point of calling him his son, uh, and then they have a breakaway because because young uh, kind of has a disconnect with this idea that everything is sexual in nature as in sexual repression or sexual trauma or you know psychoanalysis you know so all trauma kind of has its base in in our development with sexuality which is Freud's kind of Shtick. obsession yeah. <laughs> And so, so then the way that he explains it is that actually even the sexual instincts play a role in our collective unconscious. As in, nobody has, with no human education, if you grew up in the wild, you're still going to have these sexual tendencies. If you come across, you know, a female, you know, even, you know, it's like, 
well, we can get all kinds of weird, you know, you, you have the idea of like a, a man in the wild, like growing up. But <clears throat> there yeah. are some cases of feral children. Yeah, feral children. Yeah, yeah. And then so they, they play a role, I guess, in psychology to a great deal because of, yeah. yeah. It's, the, it's the experiment you can't do. Right. And it's, there you go. It's back to the baby, the analogy where it's like, uh, it's the closest thing we're going to find to something that we're... we're un, yeah, undomesticated uh, and, and yeah. unnurtured. Yeah, unnurtured. Yeah, and, nature, raw nature. And yeah, where there's no... Uh, assimilated cultural right. dogmas or references or whatever. I did read a lot, actually a bunch about the feral children yeah. and they just they, they once they reach a certain age they can never learn language really and they right. can never really learn any sort of social skills and yeah, they masturbate all day and they just, you know, they, right, they are right, always right. going to live very sad um, mentally. Savage lives. Well, sad. They're, just, they're They're very animalistic yeah, but I guess it depends on too where they were raised. Right. You know, it's, what's it? Because a lot of them were raised by you know locked in cupboards or raised with it, like street dogs and all this horrible right. scenario. Oh, wow. So okay. that is, you know, we adopt that kind so of So that's a form of nurture in itself. You know, yeah, no, that's definitely a form of nurture. There's there's the ones that were believed to to be raised by like wolves or something. But back to Jung. So, how defined is his spirituality in that? Well, that's because that's so, the, you know. Yeah. So he he's coming up. So Freud's whole mission is to make psychology a accepted medical science, right? So he wants to bring it, you know, kind of to a place that it's considered scientific and measurable and, and that kind of thing. So his obsession with a particular framework, particularly a uh, sexual, psychological framework, analytical. He, you know, he wants to make it in such a way that everyone starts from that point. You know, it's all kind of structured. And then Young sees holes in that, and he sees with his patients that they don't all fit in that model, or that you kind of reach these impasses. And then so he, he starts to develop. A more complete theory where the sexual instincts are only part of this uh, a priori knowledge that he calls a collective unconscious and he groups it together with other instincts like for example um, like like what I said that the instinct to, to kind of be defensive around snakes or spiders or, or certain things like that and then and then he starts to go into this deep research into the mythologies of different civilizations and cultures. And he starts to see these patterns, right? And then so, so and then what he finds is in, in the cases where his um, patients can't, can't actually find the source of their trauma or the source of their, you know, of their ailments, he, he usually goes into, uh, into analyzing their dreams or or through uh, through hypnosis and stuff like that and he finds that particularly schizophrenic patients have these detailed mythologies like like kind of laid out in front of them that they've never learned 
or, or you know, experience in their lives. But they kind of have access to this knowledge. And then, and then he finds that others, maybe they've, maybe they've had some, some kind of third, like third, like some kind of distant access to those mythologies, but haven't actually, they wouldn't be able to remember and tell you any of the stories. But then in their dreams, like take a snake again, it doesn't just act as a, as a, as a snake, as, as you know, what you would understand by going to a zoo or reading an encyclopedia, but it, it, it has all these characteristics that the mythologies uh, attribute to. And then, and then so in the dreams, what he finds is then these symbols keep coming up and then he eventually starts to use the word archetypes to describe them because they're not just let's say animals or things it's it's a complete kind of situations that that he then he, he kind of yeah he kind of attributes to them this this collective unconscious knowledge right and then and then when he you know as he as he kind of lives through the experience of world war one and world war two then he starts to say well you know oftentimes you're dealing with a with the personal problems of a patient so you might you know really want to limit yourself to their personal unconscious but when you see a whole country or maybe the whole global population act in an irrational way then you might you might be tempted to say they're they're having a kind of collective neurosis and then and then so that fits in really well with this idea that there's this collective unconscious that when they get triggered into it then they're all experiencing a shared neurosis and so that's where you know he's at that time analyzing the, the nazi scenario right and saying how is it that these archetypes you know how these bi biblical these biblical myths uh, against the Jews, you know, are coming back, and and the the G Germans are are adopting the Roman salute, you know, and they've taken the swastika from you know way before the 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 Romans, and and um, and really the myth of you know the myth of uh, let's say a perfect human race you know or, or these kinds of things that had existed and were now reborn into the mainstream mainstream culture to the to the extent that these people are now motivated to march into battle and risk risk their lives for these ideals and then so so what he observes is that that's a kind of collective neurosis at work and then for me the parallel is now we're living through this global pandemic where again, it's like everyone, so particularly the neurosis piece is where people are either overreacting or underreacting. Then you, then you attribute to it some unknown force. And that's what he does. So anyway, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend to, to understand his, his work to, you know. It sounds like, but. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know how much of his own work he could truly, you know, pinpoint to an exact because it's that's he's dancing between the fine line between science and science biology magic. biology and like mysticism mysticism yeah yeah and, and so that's what he gets accused of over and over again but you know he kind of keeps coming back to the idea well 
Well, you know, you don't you don't call natural instincts mysticism. Yeah. Right. And then you don't call, let's say, instincts towards uh, sexual development or or instincts towards um, survival mysticism. The uh, difference is that human instincts change as a collective over time. Have you read End of Poverty by um, Sachs? Yeah. He equates like a lot of the problems on earth, economic, social, based off of um, geography. And that human tribes are born and it depends on the climate and the geography of how they're able to um, communicate and associate with other groups of humans. And that shaped all the different races and nations over time based off of um, how many much waterways did they have or how difficult the land was it to talk to these people or how much resources was there to share and that's from the very beginning so um, the idea that that um, uh, the fact that human instincts unlike the snake kind of change over time is where it's I can see how some biologists could easily make an argument against putting any sort of mysticism on it and just you could you can go into the depth to try to explain everything but through those kind of like collective um, evolving instincts from our complex history of evolving and interacting more than trying to relate it to some sort of um, universal and ingrained um, uh, uh, archetypal instinctual um, uh, karma, you know? Well, okay, so here's where it gets interesting because it's only recently that we start to really disconnect the two because we, we stop having these direct relationships with those archetypes. For example, it's only in the last oh so many years that the sun, you know, kind of becomes secondary to electric light and, and stuff like that. You know, we, we kind of stop depending on it for, yeah. you know, especially... We set our clocks. Yeah. Our biological clocks. So, so right, so it does, but we, we kind of, then we play with, you know, with elect, electric light or, or yeah. you know, otherwise artificial light to extend, extend or, you know, or modify that, that ability. And then the other thing is that so, for example, he, he talks about a tr an African tribe that the word for the sun in the morning is equivalent to their word for God. So they say that's God. But after a certain angle, it stops having that word. Now it's, I don't know what it is, but it's a different word. And then, so to them, the sun is not just the sun rising in the morning, it's it's so much it's it's a, a whole story it's a whole story of emotions it's the end of night which for them symbolizes danger and you know it's like when they're trying to sleep but other animals are trying to eat it's also symbolizes cold and you know all kinds of other stuff but the rising sun you know so then the rising sun is the end of night so it's it's this kind of god godly rebirth happening and, and then the, the emotion that comes with it of, of being safe, of being able to see what's around you and, and having warmth and all this stuff. 
So to them, it's very connected. To us, you know, we're only separated by how many, however many years, right, from some of these indigenous yeah. tribes. Um, <clears throat> you know, the sun is now kind of this, you know, it's just kind of the star, you know, that we're orbiting. And, you know, it, 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 it kind of loses its mysticism. But what he, what he points out is that we must have had that relationship that these indigenous tribes have for so many thousands of years. Yeah. So, so that's where the collective unconscious is coming from. And so even though now we can pretend that it's, uh, you know, it's just like this kind of arbitrary, you know, just like this, I, I think that this it, f- physical phenomenon, you know? I think we have to because... For good or for bad, we we have reprogrammed ourselves as partially nocturnal, and that's something so profound and innately different. And like you said, it's happened so quickly, and it's so much that we couldn't possibly relate to both anymore. To the idea that the sun is God, and that you know, and the idea that we have changed the complete meaning of our internal clocks and our systems of fear and hope and and safety and everything is we change it so quickly within our own abilities that we can't manifest it in the same way anymore you know which is funny it comes out though in uh, funny cultural references like Superman you know how he gets his power from the sun he flies into the sun yeah he gets from the sun but so, uh, right so it, so well that's that a immediately example. makes that immediately makes him you know uh, very so, relatable Right. So, so that's that's a perfect example of how you know an archetype that so so what Jung is saying is that we might lose that reference of how we might totally I mean we might totally forget the mythology behind it or you know uh, some kind of story about the sun being a god or this or that uh, but somehow like if if we have a dream with a sun and and depending in that dream what our relationship is the brightness of the sun or the warmth or something something or or let's say you're at night and there's a lack of sun and there's a darkness or something like that so he, what he's saying is that that dream the sun is still going to have potentially all those archetypal meaning characteristics attached to it even though you personally in your life are not experiencing the sun in that way anymore so 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 in that way like a a snake still has the archetypal characteristics even though most people in urban settings don't see snakes ever in their lifetime right so and, and then that's how it enters pop culture or like yeah a good poem a good poem you know you everything plays a character that you already know you know it doesn't re-describe to you all these characters they're kind of familiar because it's using known you know known archetypes for them you know so so it just has to tell you oh this is a character of a, a of a joker and you kind of understand that and this is a wizard and this is a this or that this is the father this is the you know and then and then so yeah, so then it doesn't have to go into rich descriptions of what a, let's say, a, a, a controlling father is like, you know, because we, we kind of like instinctively have that archetype or what a nurturing mother is like or, 
or what the relationship yeah. is. No, I, I, I 100% agree with that. No matter how much we, we change the, the reality of our circumstances and our psyche at this point, the, you know, the basic things that have been ingrained in us over the last, you know, 100,000 years are, are the, you know, that's the meat and potatoes for always and forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so what, I mean, yeah. for him, I can see for Jung, that's a really um, powerful tool right. to try to... Analyze his patients. Yeah, analyze his patients. Right. And, and, he, and it's something you don't think of generally. Well, it's something that his contemporaries were... Not just not thinking of. They were saying, "Well, that that can't even be possible anymore because right. yeah, be you have your basic. Everything's about sex or your day to day life, right? Right. Kind of. Man, let's take a little break, and so that we can review what it sounds like and get some water and stuff. Yeah. Well, we're just trying to see what it sounds like to talk to each other. The quality of the audio is obviously garbage. No, it should be good.